0: Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. And together, alongside my nursing students, I bring together my friends and colleagues in an effort to answer the questions, provide mentorship, and oftentimes help other professional nurses along the way. Hope you enjoy these episodes. To the Virtual Clinical Podcast. This is episode eight. I am joined with my colleague and friend Ashley Kundravi, who is a nurse practitioner in the Neuroimmunology Clinic, which sounds really fascinating to me. Um, and I didn't even know that that kind of clinic existed until she mentioned it. So here we are. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Ashley's background, where she started from, where she came from, and now her journey to being a nurse practitioner. So, welcome, Ashley. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. I was reaching out and saying, hey, I want to be on this podcast. I was like, yes, I'm so good. So <laughs> so you started your journey um, at the University of Delaware. Yes.
1: And was a biology major, correct? Yeah. So I <laughs> entered UD actually as a communications major. Oh. Um, I had, you know, it's I remember being a little kid and my mom saying, if you, you have to learn how to make your bed. That was always a struggle for me because if you ever become a nurse, you'll need to know how to do this. And I remember being like 10 years old and thinking, I will never be a nurse. That is such a silly thing to say. Why would she say that? Yeah. And so when I went to college and entered as a communications major and then switched to nursing. So wait, so um, why did you be the communications major first? What was your, what was your insight? <laughs> um I was convinced that I wanted to be like a professional writer oh yeah that's so cool and um but what ended up happening was part of being a comm major is you had to take breadth requirement classes um What what are those I'm sorry so like uh things outside of your major so you had to kind of do either history or um, you know, science. And what ended up happening is I took some chem classes and <laughs> thought, I like gosh, it. I like this way more than I like communication. <laughs> so I swapped into um, biology and, and got my first degree in biology. But I, I knew I wanted to do nursing just because of switching degrees. I knew I wanted to do nursing like sophomore, or junior year um, after having worked, you know, in a, in a gynecologist clinic and having volunteered in the hospital. And um, when I approached my advisor about it, they said, you know, it'll, it'll take you just as much time if you switch completely right now th- as it would to finish biology, get your bachelor's in biology, and then do an accelerated BSN after.
0: Yeah. I, was,
1: I was looking at six years either way. So I figured right. I'd go the, the route with the accelerated.
0: Yeah, I'm, I was, I'm not, I wasn't on the same boat. So I graduated and then went back like a year after to do nursing. So, but you know, I, I think it's all relative in terms of how much, how many years it takes to finish something. Cause now I'm going back to
1: my doctorate and I'm like, well, that took me like 20 years to
0: finish my nursing degrees, yeah. I guess, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, looking at, at some of the, the other degrees I've been looking at the DNP or the, the PhD, I'm like, well, it says it takes three years. I'm like, your master's is supposed to take three years, and it took me five. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, at this point, I don't even think about how long it takes you to do these things because I'm like, well, I kind of like the journey as well.
1: Yeah. You know, it kind yeah. of is
0: rewarding to to work hard, but also work for something. So, yeah, it'll get done. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a quick question though. So a lot of a lot of people I have spoken to outside of my student group, also on different forums that I belong on, they actually are looking to start like maybe like before nursing school or during nursing school, kind of volunteering in a hospital. So what Mm -hmm. actually did you do in the hospital and how was that experience like kind of like rewarding for you or necessary or not necessary towards nursing
1: school? So my, I I knew I sort of wanted to go into medicine um, pretty early and, and actually like in sophomore year college, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do med school or um, nursing school or something, you know, optometry. I, I knew I wanted to do medicine, but I wasn't sure exactly what. Um, so I, through um, my extracurricular activity, which was riding horses, mm-hmm. um, met a gynecologist um, and she, uh, Dr. McCullough, she was wonderful. And she said, Listen, we're hiring a front desk person at the office. Why don't you come and take a job? you know, at our front desk, and then you can kind of see how everyone interacts out in the clinic, um, and kind of see if this is something you might be interested in. So, you know, as, as I worked in the clinic and I kind of got to know the different roles of the different providers and the different people within the clinic, um, you know, fairly early on, I I was like, me and the nurses and this nurse midwife, I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to be in that role. Um, So that was kind of how I got guided. um, And through that also, I was um, volunteering at the same hospital, um, Christiana Hospital in Delaware. And, you know, there I was pushing people out to their cars in the wheelchair. Um, (laughs) That was pretty much my job. But, you know, you, you get to be on the floor, you're on the floor and you're just kind of watching what's going on around and kind of seeing, okay, like that's what the doctor does. That's what the nurse does. that's what the nurse assistant does. And I'm like, you know, the, this is the what nursing. Is. Yeah. The nursing is really where I kind of see myself going versus all that's these really other cool.
0: roles. That's really cool. You got that experience. Cause there's so many people that don't. And then even like, it sounds like, leading up to now your nurse practitioner experience in a clinic, it sounds like that experience was really valuable to you, getting to know what the environment was going to be like before you got into it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it made, it did, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but the transition from working in the ICU to working in the clinic was uh, jarring, to say the least. But having had that background of working front desk in a, a outpatient clinic was very much like kind of helped me remember like okay this is how this works and you know like it's not it's it's a little bit different and it's a lot different and you know this is this is how things obviously that was a gynecology clinic and I I went to work in neurology so there were pretty significant differences there
0: (laughs) a bit of differences anatomically you know yeah
1: it's all one body system if we think about it it's true. It's true. Yep. I, uh, the cutoff in the one in either one really is the belly button. Yeah. I was story. just focused a blow before and now it's above.
0: <laughs> 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 so, so was your program a second degree program then when you went back to Delaware?
1: Yeah, so I went straight into an accelerated um, second degree nursing bachelor's program after I finished my bachelor's in biology. So I, I finished my bachelor's, my first one in May of 2010, and then in the fall, like August, September, I started right up with the nursing. I already had all, almost all of the science classes I needed. Um, And it was really just anatomy, um, pharmacology, uh, and, you know, nursing theory and stuff like that. It was, it was a pretty condensed program.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. My program was quite intense as well. It was 18 months. Yeah. And you got like your clinical experiences on like two days a week. And it really was just this abbreviated experience. It wasn't like, I mean, it was like eight hours a day, but it wasn't necessarily like how your traditional baccalaureate students get when they get like, focused, you know, clinical assignments towards their classes? And like it's kind of like abbreviated, you know?
1: We, Delaware did it a little bit differently where, okay. so we did our clinicals with the regular undergrad students. Um, That's really cool. So like the first, mm, I would say year, was pretty intensive classroom work. It's It's been you know, almost 10 years now, so I'm trying to remember, but the first, like, year was, um, the first year was pretty much all classroom, and we did, Delaware had, the way they structured their academic year, we had a fall semester, and then we had a winter semester, which yeah. most of the traditional students didn't do, right. and then we had spring, and then we actually had two summer sessions, so okay. that first, like, year and a half, we were in class 12 months time. of the year. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when it came time to do clinicals, we actually just went into clinicals with the traditional students. Um, it, was, it was a lot of work. I mean, it was a very intense program, but it was good because I did feel like I got a lot of clinical experience.
0: Yeah, that's really great. I went to Westchester, and it was the first year they opened up the second-degree program, so we didn't do anything with the traditional students, um, but a lot of things that we did do, you know, are similar to what your experiences were like in Delaware. So we had, you know, a, like all year long was yeah. basically. We, I, I remember, it, never stopped. it never stopped. I remember getting <laughs> two days off between fall semester, or no, the, the summer semester that we started, so we started in May and ended sometime in August. And we got two days off Saturday and Sunday. And then that Monday, so it started like all over again and I was like okay we're doing this and then by that December they actually gave us off for that winter break thank goodness I was I was cooked I was just like so exhausted mentally that I just couldn't focus anymore yeah. and then when the spring semester returned again I was so thankful that this mindfulness-based stress reduction course was offered because my stress yeah. level went, like, right up through the, yeah. through the roof you know again and I was like man like this is it, it is it is quite intense for people that don't know what a secondary student goes through. Way different than a baccalaureate-prepared student. Um, more condensed, more intense, I think. And the expectations of doing good are not only brought upon by yourself because you become this type A individual where you want to do like straight A's throughout the program. Right. Oh but yeah. But <laughs> also like your your own cohort too is like oh we gotta get A's and you're like yes we
1: gotta get A's. <laughs> we all have to get A's. Yeah. yeah, we all have to get A's. And if you don't get A's, then you fail. And, and I had this. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, no, I was just thinking I'm thinking back. kind of. I'm like, oh, my God, I did all that. And I was working two jobs oh, through God. the program. I was working at the OBGYN office because um, there were a couple days of school where it was just a, I only had a half day of classes. So the other half of the day, I would go to the OBGYN office and then nights, I worked as a fundraiser for the university. So I would go to the call center and like make these phone calls. I, Looking back on it, I have no idea how I did it. <laughs> yeah, I just have to say, You're like, yeah, yeah, I can do this. It's totally fine. But
0: really, when you look back and you're like, I don't think I was a, a healthy individual at that point. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I slept like four hours a night after I was done with classwork and, you know, I, I have no clue what I did. I, that sounds typical, though, of so many people that I met that are, that are in college age,
0: so like their early 20s, I, I'll define that as early 20s, and they're just like, yeah, I can do this, and I can sleep four hours, and I'm good to go the next day, and I'm yeah. like, I look at them, I'm like, but, but do you know how really good sleep is? <laughs> do you know yeah. how amazing sleep is? And they're like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. So now, it, it must be a thing where you don't feel tired until you're past 30, so.
1: Yeah. And then you get old and tired and you yeah, like to sleep. AM, I'll
0: take supper,
1: you know, at four, play bridge. Yeah. <laughs> you get the early bird special.
0: I guess I get cheap meals, I guess.
1: I don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so then you came to the loveliness of central Pennsylvania. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I love it here. Um, no. and, began, and
1: began work in the neuro unit. Uh, no, actually I, um, grew up in Lancaster. So for me, it was coming home. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I moved home. Um, and I actually started work at a little teeny tiny 18 bed community hospital. Um, yes, it was definitely an experience. (laughs) (laughs) Community hospitals are, are honestly one of the
0: toughest hospitals to work in.
1: Yeah, I got, as a brand new nurse, I got six weeks of orientation. Wow. Um, and then they were just like, okay, well, we're short-staffed, so, you know, good luck. Um, but I learned a lot. We did not have a doctor usually in the building after 4 p.m. until yeah. 6 a.m. the next morning. So, yeah. you know, there was a lot of emphasis on nursing judgment and, and you know, using your skills as a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that when I, when I came up to Hershey, I worked there for about a year and a half, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, and pretty much right away, I knew I wanted to work at a bigger institution because that was my experience in school. Um, and when I came up to Hershey, I initially worked on the, the floor, um, the surgical, general surgical floor. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. And... You lost some of that. I did feel like I lost some of that, but then, you know, you gain it back when you go back to the ICU and it's, you know, you're making a lot of decisions. So in some ways it was, it was a little hair raising, but in other ways it was a really good experience. Yeah. Um, I think had I gone there later in my career, I would have been very happy, but I think I was just too new to be, you know, to be comfortable practicing under those circumstances.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. I, I remember working at another hospital and we didn't have physicians that rounded at night. And we had physicians with um, PAs primarily. I didn't mm-hmm. see a lot of PAs. And it was unique because if you had a problem, you could page the doctor, but you were always scared of getting like yelled at in a way. Yeah, cause because they'd wake up. Because they'd wake up. Like, oh, how dare you? Can't just wake up six in the morning. And it's like, well, you're, this is your patient. And we really can't wait till six in the morning because I have this issue going on. And if you're okay with that, that's
1: fine. But I need you to be aware of this and tell me that you're okay with it. So go ahead. It was, the, the hospital was so little, we did not have pharmacy overnight. Oh, wow. So I remember basically what the pharmacists would do before they left for the day is they would look at all the admitted patients and see what meds they would need overnight and stock our Pyxis. Okay. But where that broke down is if you got an overnight admission, they didn't necessarily, I mean, the basic meds were in the Pyxis, but you didn't necessarily have meds. And I I remember on one occasion we admitted somebody and I forget for what, but we paged the doctor, they gave us verbal orders, and they said they wanted them to start Banco. They were, um, you know, and prescribed the dose and whatever. And we went into the Pyxis and we didn't have it. So we actually had a sister hospital that they we called and they put the Vanko in a cooler in the back of a taxi and sent it over and we met them out front and got the vanco and brought it up. It was that it was is, that sounds like
0: unique problem solving with yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> what is the terminology I I want to I want to use in in a rural setting. Yeah that like something that exists in hospital organizations that are perhaps out in Wyoming or Montana where hospitals are miles apart and you have to be pretty creative with how right med- med delivery is and like all this other stuff. And this doesn't sound like it happens like in other places, but I I suppose it certainly does because you've lived through it.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it, it truly was a small hospital. It was a, it was a community hospital. It was not like a trauma center or anything. So you know we were pretty much caring for pneumonia cellulitis um dka like very basic things anything that yeah. was more severe you know we didn't ever see an mi we didn't ever see you know a stroke those things all got shipped out because we really weren't equipped to to handle them
0: yeah you would you would definitely need a 24/7 pharmacy at that point if you were yeah. and yeah for those sure patients yeah that sounds yeah. More of a telemetry unit that some students might be more familiar with, or not even a telemetry unit. it depends on what your hospital okays you know and rather than seeing more of the sick patients that require a bunch
1: of monitoring and things like that yeah i mean we we had a couple slip through the cracks we had an m i that you know the e k g in the labs didn't look bad, they thought it was um like uh, Gallbladder issues, or something, they admitted yeah, them, and yeah. you know, an hour later they're throwing PVCs, and then suddenly they're in VFib on the floor, and you're like, uh oh, oh no, oh no. For <laughs> <laughs> anyone um, that,
0: that doesn't know what it is, if, if, you, if you look at a heart EKG, um, which is a, a nice picture of your heart basically, you, you should have this nice rhythm that has a, a couple of spikes on it that re- represent different um, electro wavelengths that we measure and, and kind of determine if you are in a sinus rhythm or a different kind of rhythm so we so it's all with electrophysiology and math basically and we figure out what your heart rhythm is and there's many different kinds and so VFIB fib is like this squiggly line for lack of a yeah. way better description that sometimes it's very fine and that is a that is a ICU patient right away you are probably going to do your basic life support with your advanced life support services by delivering meds that's what advanced life support is and probably putting a tube down this person's throat into their lungs help them breathe mm-hmm. and all this other crazy stuff and potentially putting the defibrillator pads on them and giving them a chop yep so that's yeah
1: that, that's that ultimately is, what we did you know that that's, that's what happened yes. and then <laughs> you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm
0: assuming that you transferred that patient. To, to yes.
1: Yeah. We we uh got ROSC within I think I think it was like it was longer than than four minutes but it was shorter than six so somewhere around the five minute mark we got Rosk and um you know <laughs> the, the patient actually woke up and had not been intubated yet at that point um, we were just bagging and um was quite disoriented. uh so um you know we we were trying to keep them calm while we got them stabilized to transfer to the sister hospital that was bigger so that was a challenge in and of itself because obviously they wake up and they're like oh my gosh what happened they feel terrible and you know there's 14 people leaning over them yelling hey. at each other right you know? hey
0: hello oh, are you okay I'm like, yeah i'm fine what happened you know yeah, yeah. I can
1: imagine how I, frightening that that might be i think i if i remember the patient the nurse that was giving the compressions at that moment the patient immediately pushed her off and was like get away from me like, we're like no it's okay you're okay <laughs> you're
0: okay you're good you're good all right we're good that, yeah oh goodness that sounds frightening for if, if if you were a new nurse that sounds frightening you know, because Yeah. know but you're in there giving impressions and then you return to what's called ROS, which is the um return of spontaneous circulation so that means that your heart is back into to somewhat of a normal rhythm it's probably not like you know normal signs rhythm they probably have a lot of things going on with their heart at this point yeah. but that's probably the the, the most uh shocking thing I would say that you probably find as a new nurse that your patient has had this return and they're awake and then all of a sudden they're like pushing you off of them because they they have this cognitive sense that you're you're on top of them and you're
1: attacking me you're not you're just kind of like trying to save their life and their chest hurts because cpr you're gonna break ribs You're, you're gonna maybe crack the sternum and you know so all they they know when they woke up is there's this person over me and I hurt and they're hurting me, you know? Right. right. <laughs> Man,
0: that, so. sounds, that sounds crazy. And then did you, so in, in some hospitals, I, I know, um, for instance, we, we do it. They will pull the patient if they have not um, achieved, like, spontaneous mentation. So pull yeah. them for a period. And, and probably, I, I would assume that even if they achieve mentation, they'll probably intubate them and sedate them and then cool them for a period of 24 hours until they kind of can wean them off. Right. So did, did you do any of that? Did
1: you pack them with ice for for any reason? No, um that individual was quite combative. Um so we pretty much just sedated and got him on a nitro drip and packed him up and sent him over to uh the sister hospital where I think they they went immediately for an open heart operation. Um, I was told later down the grapevine um, that that patient actually did really well um, and walked out of the hospital with no deficits. Wow. But it was a little hair raising being in such a small hospital. We didn't have a doctor on the floor at that moment that that happened. We actually had to, we were connected to a very small emergency room and our nurse manager actually had to run over to the emergency room and get the physician out of the emergency room to come wow. over and help with the code. So it was, yeah. it was unique sure circumstances. No had, like, had like personal phones, you know, like
0: ASCOMs or, or another type of like phone. No, we,
1: we didn't. And we didn't have an overhead paging system at that time um, where, you know, even there would be an operator that could get on the overhead and say like, code in room you know 10 or whatever room it was but right. it was it was unique moving to moving to a bigger hospital was definitely quite a transition like yeah oh, and just call like the pharmacy and there's someone there <laughs> <laughs> 24 <laughs> 7 <Hey>. yeah weird to <laughs> pay overhead page somebody yeah i can page the doctor and and they'll come you it's, know i'm it's not little things you know I'm not texting an EKG to somebody at 2 a.m. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they can just is there on the computer. It's right there. Yeah, exactly. It, mirage it was over there. It was a pretty it was a pretty good adjustment. So that was my first job. But then I did work at on the general surgery floor for a year and a half and and you know, got a really good education there, I worked with some great nurses before I came to to work with you guys in Neuro for a couple years.
0: <laughs> I just threw my hands up celebrating that. Yes. <laughs> but no, yes. But I, I, I often do tell my students that a lot of really great things happen on a medical surgical floor. You learn a lot of skills. You learn a lot of time management yeah. things, um, a lot about medication delivery and how, and how, you, how you can really handle uh, difficult situations in multiple patient rooms. Because I don't know what many ratios are, but there's, it's quite a bit more than your ICU level ratio yes I don't remember what episode I talked about ratios on but it was one of one of those episodes and I think I was telling about how I worked I got floated one night to a floor that had mm. this was an old hospital that, that that I worked for and it was a 14 to 1 ratio <laughs> I was like yeah what oh do we, gosh. What, <laughs> is this, what does this even mean how do I I don't even take care of people like this you know and now it's I think one to four, one to five, and some some areas it's one to two if you're in the ICU and one to three if you're IMC. So that's really, really nice. But a lot of places, you know, like I often think of long-term care facilities and it's one yeah. to 30 people, you know, yeah. and the, the care is a lot less intense, but it's not any less
1: important. So
0: hopefully we'll get there.
1: The acuity but- was a big adjustment from... The, the community hospital, even to the Hershey hospital was, you know, I was floor, a floor nurse in both places, but what was considered floor in both places was very different. You know, at the little community hospital, it was almost like an assisted living and the ratio was six to one. Um, whereas I moved up to Hershey and it was four or five to one. And the patients there just generally were a lot sicker what what they considered floor there at that little tiny hospital just because of the lack of resources honestly would have been considered IMC just because they needed more attention yeah um you know so the the acuity was very different um but you know it was it was an interest and I learned a ton on the floor I mean I'm definitely a big a big proponent of every nurse's first job should be on the floor.
0: <laughs> or, or in some sort of med-serve capacity.
1: I yeah, think in certain units, if, if
0: they do it well, you can certainly welcome somebody into an ICU setting. But, right. I, but I do believe that certain, certain skills and components are often sometimes taught better on the floors in an yeah. acute med-serve space because of the different type of acuity and the different type of focus you have on the nursing care that you provide.
1: Yeah, and the, the learning curve... You know, having been a floor nurse, when I moved to the ICU, I had been a floor nurse for at those two different hospitals for about three, three and a half years. And even, you know, with that experience and, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, you learn a lot. Um, it was a pretty significant learning curve going into ICU. I remember my first day, um, I actually shadowed with the now manager of the neuro ICU. She was my preceptor. Um, but I remember the first day, one of our, our colleagues, uh, Mary Lou, got an admission. And uh, I mean, there was an A-line, there was an EVD, there was, you know, all I think a chest tube on this person and just drips upon drips. Mm. And... Jen took me into the room to show me. And she goes, you know, this is the end goal is that you're going to be able to manage this and you're going to be able to handle this. And I remember at the time thinking, Oh my God, I'm never going to learn all of this. This is so much. It, it's a um, lot. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I did, I did it. <laughs> yeah, you did. Absolutely. <laughs> Eventually. Um, but you know, it was that having that be like what you see on the first day and thinking, Ooh, I, I thought I was pretty good on the floor and I don't know anything here. <laughs> like this is a whole new world. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you bring up a really good point
0: in terms of learning curves. Yeah. And even when you go into different organizations and hospital settings, it's a different learning curve for any single nurse that wants to step into the world of nursing. Different learning curve in a community hospital. Different learning curve in a um, level two trauma center versus a different yeah, learning yeah. curve in a level one trauma center. And even different learning curves within the units of the hospitals. So, for instance, you started on the med surge unit, and it was a different learning curve than what you had at the outside hospital. And I think mm-hmm. that you even mentioned, even stepping into the ICU, so many different lines, so many different drips, all that stuff. And sometimes, even if a student has seen these things in clinical, it's still not the same as when you step inside the realm as an independent nurse. Yeah, not doctor. at all. Right. Right. And, and that's what I try to convey to students is that you're, you, you're here and you're seeing a lot of things, but it's definitely not the same as if you were the independent nurse taking yeah, care yeah. of this patient. And it becomes your responsibility, not me looking over your shoulder saying, hey, did you, did you pay attention? Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot different too, though, if you step inside of a great unit, that if you do have questions, there are people around you that will support you, and you can find out about those things relatively quick instead of like struggling.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, the message for students is when you're in your clinicals and stuff, that's your shot to learn as much as you can. I mean, information download there because at some point you will be out in the hospital and you'll be precepting. Now you're not just a student anymore. You're now precepting and you're going to be expected to be independent. And, Even, you don't have to be perfect and you don't have to know anything, but even if, say, you walk into a patient's room and they have an A-line and you think, I don't know how that works, but I've seen it before. I remember stuff about this. I mean, you're already, you've already got a leg up. You don't have to come out of nursing school knowing everything and you won't come out of nursing school knowing everything, but use your clinicals and learn as much as you can because every little bit will help when you when you come out later. Yeah. It goes for nurse practitioner school, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's also a really good tip because, you know, yeah. I, I, there are a lot of students who have their ideas set on becoming a nurse practitioner and like, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's why this episode is really important. Um, and even so, I always tell students that if you're in clinical, it's also considered a, like, almost like a job interview. Yeah. Because you're gonna be interacting with these people And you might think, man, it's a great unit to work on. Prepare yourself and get into the unit as much as you can, you know, and learn Mm -hmm. about the unit culture and and the unit politics and the the unit structure and, and how that works and invest in that moment. Sometimes people don't want to do a capstone on the same unit that their clinicals are on. If you're really interested in one particular field or one particular aspect, do it up like that's the most experience you can because that makes it look even better on your resume yes you did not only your clinical experience on these units but your capstone experience on on, on this unit as well
1: yeah yeah so um, you know when I was in nursing school I went in thinking I wanted to do OBGYN because of working in that clinic and and I will always remember uh, Claire Szymanski was the midwife that sort of took me under her wing. And I was like, I'm going to be a midwife. And in my clinical rotation, you know, I was pumped for the labor and delivery (laughs) rotation and I went in and like day one, I was like, I hate this. I (laughs) never want to do this again. This is disgusting. I passed out in the C-section. I mean, it was a disaster. (laughs) Wow. Like I, I don't like babies. I'm not really sure why I ever thought I wanted to work with babies. <laughs> I've never liked babies. <laughs> so it's really important to find that out while you're doing <laughs> your, your clinical experience
0: that, you know what, I really love this idea, but this is not, not yeah, fun. no way. Nope.
1: So, nope, I, you know, yeah. after that, I felt a little bit like in school, I felt a little bit untethered. Like, do I really want to be a nurse? I thought I, I went into this thinking I wanted to be a midwife and now I Definitely no. I don't want to be a midwife. <laughs> like, so what do I do? You know that though. And by you know luck or serendipity or whatever you want to call it, my next rotation was a full semester rotation, and it was on the neurotrauma floor. And okay. that was, and I get in there and I'm like, I, you know, having all these questions about, like, I don't know what I want to do. And the more I started working with these patients, and you know, I had some time in the neuro ICU as a student, and I thought, you know what, neuro is super cool. And it was just, it was, it was like a little answer to, like, yes, you do want to be a nurse. It just not the way you thought you did. <laughs> it's not as an OBGYN nurse, it's actually as a brain nurse who deals with crazy
0: crazy patient outcomes and patient diagnoses
1: yeah absolutely absurd stuff sometimes but yeah it was it was definitely and and that was you know when I graduated from nursing school I knew I wanted to do something in neurology or neurosurgery and it it took me a few years of working on the floor to to get back to it but I was thrilled to because I I really do love the neuro stuff yeah
0: yeah so then you went back to school to become a nurse mm-hmm. practitioner. What was, your, what was your driving moment when you were like, I think I really want to be a nurse practitioner as opposed
1: to any other specialty in nursing? It was, it, it was honestly very early. Like with, um, it was in probably the OBGYN office. Even after I realized like, I don't want to be a midwife. I had still seen the stuff that Claire um, and the other um advanced practice providers did in that OBGYN office outside of just babies. You know, they did gynecological care and they did general care and and I had seen that. And so it was then it was pretty early on that I was like, eventually I am gonna go back and get my NP. I am not going to, you know, be a, a bedside nurse, I think, forever. And that could have changed. I could have changed my mind for sure, but you know, the, I I had the opportunity through my life to know some really cool NPs and midwives and uh, PAs, and so it it did sort of affirm that that path. For yeah, me. So it,
0: yeah. Uh, similarly, with with CRNAs, they have to go through the shadowing experience, and I don't think that many people take advantage of shadowing an MP, Even mm-hmm. like volunteering at the office, you can certainly do that as a nurse. You can volunteer anywhere you want, and. Or, or even just saying, you know, can I, like, come experience what you do for a day? Or can I pick your brain about X, Y, and Z about what you do? So yeah. I think that's really important also because I don't think many people take advantage of that and know why they're, go, like they're, they're choosing this direction of their life. So I think yeah. that's super helpful to,
1: to really tell the students, too. The clinic I work in actually has a great program with, um, has a great relationship with the high school and high school students who think they may one day be interested in going into medicine will will come into the clinic and shadow you know for a couple hours a day for a couple weeks and you know i always love getting the students and and you know kind of seeing like well why are you interested what do you think you're interested in you know where where do you see yourself going with this and and sometimes they do kind of, you, you realize halfway through their rotation with you that they are not into this, and, but that's valuable for them, you know? It is valuable for them. And it, it makes them appreciate that, you know what, this really isn't what I thought it was going to be. Exactly. And medicine is too much of a commitment, you know, in terms of your life and so much. your education to not be sure that you want to do that.
0: (laughs) Medicine, meaning you could do anything from respiratory therapy to nursing, to physician, to PA assistant. It's a commitment for the rest of your life. Not saying that you have to work, you know, 80 hours a week, but you know, you're going to have to become an expert in something and be that expert in something.
1: And And constant, constantly educate yourself. I mean, it's never, you're never done learning and you know, for some people, if that doesn't sound attractive to them, they want to, you know, learn and and be trained in a job and be, know they can be good at a job. It's not going to be that because you're going to have to change at some point. You're going to have to incorporate new information and it can, it can be, some people are not so hot on that idea. The eternal, yeah. Yeah. the eternal student concept. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's not as bad as it <laughs> sounds people. I've only met one nurse in my entire life as a nurse. That, sta- that said to me that they did not want to, they were just done learning. They were done school, they passed their NCLEX, and they were just like, no, I'm done learning. I'm like, but it's a continual learning thing. Like, you don't get away
1: from it. And they're like, no, yeah. I'm just done. And I'm like, you're going to have a really hard time being a nurse then. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get and their the concept. Kind of the fun thing with coronavirus, you know, th- to say that there's something fun about coronavirus is initially my clinics dropped off because a lot of patients were canceling. They didn't want to go out. And, um, so I had a lot of free time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was perfect because, uh, there were a ton of lectures that you always like get the emails about, Oh, watch this video. This is a taped lecture about yep. this subject or that subject. And it was a wonderful opportunity for me to be like, well, I don't have any patients coming into the clinic. So I'm going to watch this lecture on, you know, well, all kinds of stuff. I watched someone responsible prescribing i mean there was a bunch of lectures i watched in that that's time awesome.
0: that's awesome that they that whoever provides you that service provides you that service you know yeah and, you have to, and have to like sift through any like professional organizations or
1: kind of get your education out outside of the i'm assuming outside of the organization that you work for you know the the biggest you know i work in neurology still and um the american academy of neurology was supposed to have their annual conference right around the time that that COVID really started kicking off. And um, they canceled their conference and made a lot of the lectures free online. So that was, you know, very valuable that I could just go to the AAN website and, and look up, you know, here's something about neuroimmunology, intro to neuroimmunology, which, yeah, I've been working in that for eight months at that point. But an intro I, is always welcome, I think. I st- and, and there's stuff, you know, I, where I am now, I see a lot of multiple sclerosis and and I would say 98% of my practice is multiple sclerosis, but every once in a while you, you get the weird one walk in that's neurosarcoid or, um, you know, uh, lupus, CNS lupus. And you're like, oh, wait, okay, I watched that lecture, you know, <laughs> and I've seen this before and- okay, yeah, I need to, I need to brush up on this. So it's, it's been good. It was good for that kind of broadening of the spectrum a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's really awesome. So you um, applied to nurse practitioner school in Millersville. Was there any specific requirements that you had to fulfill or an interview that you had to do and kind of like, how did you prepare yourself for applying to MP school? (laughs) before you did it or, or, or did you not? <laughs>
1: I am the worst person to ask. <laughs> I completely seat of my pants, everything. <laughs> so, um, I, I knew I wanted to be an NP and I honestly, when I applied, did not expect to get in. Um, because they said that in order to apply, you had to have three years of experience as a nurse. And I had had one. And I walked into the interview, you know, I wrote my, I've always liked to write and been a good writer. So, I, you know, writing up my mission statement or whatever they want you to do, personal statement um, was not a not an issue. And I, you know, submitted my transcript for my undergrad classes and submitted my resume. And, um, you know, I went to the interview and pretty much one of the first questions they had was, Well, it says right on our requirements that we want you to have three years of experience as a floor nurse before you start the program or not necessarily floor, but any kind of nurse. Yeah. Um, And you have one year, you've been out of school one year. So, you know, why do you think you should come now versus in two years? And I, you know, very much was just like, well, I mean, I plan to work full time through this whole program. So by the time I graduate, I'll have three years. (laughs) Really, really really good point that some people actually do use for applying to certain schools for some for they they went for it um and you know i i got admitted i was very excited um and i did work full time i i took i ended up taking longer than planned for the msn program i took some time off um for you know some personal life stuff but um, I worked full time through the whole thing, you know. I never, never went below 40 hours a week, and, um, you know, did when it got into clinicals, I, I basically had two jobs because I was working in neuro ICU and doing clinical three days a week. So it was, it was. How many hours um, per week were you doing in clinicals? Do you remember? You know, I had to have 500 by the end of the program, okay. 500 hours. Um, most weeks I was doing at least, I think, 24 to 36. Wow. Um, so you literally had no time for anything else, basically? No, no. That was another period of my life where I just <laughs> did school constantly. <laughs> um, the Four class- hours a week and then 20 hours of clinical experience. That's insane. That's
0: insane. That's intense.
1: Yeah. The, the classroom part actually was not as bad. Um, you know, I had class, I think two nights every week, and then you had your homework in between, but that was not, that was not awful. Um, the, the clinical, the year and a half of clinical rotations was rough. Yeah. (laughs) I was, sounds like it. And, you know, in my first rotation was in neurosurgery and I was working, Full time at Neuroscience and Hershey, and I live in Lancaster. And my rotation was in Reading, so pretty much every day I was driving at least an hour and fifteen minutes to get somewhere. Wow. So like <laughs> wow. well, I was either and you know driving up to Reading or driving down to Hershey, or or I put a lot of miles on my little car that year. So that sounds that sounds crazy. And you know the thing with
0: NP and, and school and clinicals. I don't know if, if this was true for you, but a lot of times people struggle with finding a mentor or, or a preceptor for their NP yeah.
1: classes. That's yeah. like such a crazy issue to have that we haven't solved the problem too. They, and they, Millersville, when I was there, they did try to find you a clinical instructor, but you know, my first rotation was with neurosurgery. I worked with a great doc and a great nurse practitioner and got to kind of get the neurosurgery side of experience. And then because it was a family practice program, I thought, you know, I really should do some family practice. Mm. So <laughs> I went into um, I the the school. I, I told them I want to do family practice and they found a, an alumni that was doing family practice at a um, federal health clinic out okay. in uh, an underserved area. And I worked with him um, and halfway through the semester, he got another job. Oh. And so I'm thinking, oh my God, how am I going to get these hours? What am yeah. I going to do? Because I can't go with him to his new job. I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to follow him to his new job. Right. Um, and luckily, my clinical supervisor was a kind-hearted woman who also was working full-time, and she was working in an urgent, well, not urgent care, but rapid treatment area of an emergency department. And she said, well, why don't you just finish up your, your second half of the semester with me? Um, and so I did. I went with her and she actually asked if I wanted to stay. Then I did my third semester with her as well, the whole semester.
0: That's really cool. I bet actually working as a fast track ED provider is quite the experience and so much different than being a nurse in ED. I've never worked in ED, but I have heard many stories of what it's yeah. like to work in ED. And I can only imagine what it's like to be an MP in ED. Bless your souls. Um,
1: it was-, what was that
0: experience like for you?
1: So it was really, there was, you know, and I was still learning so much. So you're learning family practice and, and you did see a lot of family practice stuff, you know, because, because access to family health care because of the insurance crisis and stuff in this country is not great. Um, so you saw a lot of my kid's been crying and has a fever and he keeps grabbing his ear and, you know, yes, he has an ear infection. Here's some antibiotics. Have a lovely day. Um, you know, you saw a lot of that, but then, you know, the next room you had to bounce into is some kid that broke his arm at wrestling practice, or, um, you know, uh, I I had an afternoon where I had a patient who was there for an STD check, um, and the next room I went into was someone who had had an accident while they were cleaning their gun and shot through their own hand. Oh. So... <laughs> you know just to to be able to switch yeah to be able to switch from like you know medical to surgical to orthopedic and you're bouncing around and you know I got to see a lot it was really I actually really liked that experience I would as much as I love neurology if I had to pick a second choice um and you know, get another job, I think it would be in an urgent care, an ED fast track, because I really did enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I I really do appreciate the people that do work in urgent cares. They have gotten so much better, I think, at quality care that they provide their patients, Mm -hmm. and it's one of those jobs that I think it goes, it always goes, like, unnoticed, and sometimes they can prevent serious things from happening by just Mm -hmm. doing simple things, and that's what they're there for, and A lot of people make fun of them for working in urgent care, et cetera, et cetera. cetera. But I think that they're just one of the best things that our health or like our our health providership has developed. And how to, how do we keep people out of the hospital and not in an emergency room? Because emergency services are expensive. Yeah. If you have to go to the emergency room and you need like a procedure done Sometimes they can do it in, in the emergency room and it's quite costly to your insurance and to you even. So yeah. urgent cares are definitely that step that help prevent those things from, from happening.
1: Yeah. For, for the fast track crew that came through, I mean, the majority of what I saw was things like sore throat, sinus infection, ear infection, um, you know, pregnancy testing, things like that. Um, know, my gynecology past came back to haunt me because my (laughs) preceptor said, oh, are you sure you don't want to go into gyne? And I was like, I'm pretty sure. And she's like, well, we're just going to give you all the Paps that come in and just make sure you really don't want to do it. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I did a lot of them. And by the end of the semester, I was like, if I never have to do another one of these ever again, I will... I will not shed any tears. Um, that, sounds, that sounds evil. I think it's just you know they're like oh a student this is a good experience for the students. Yeah. <laughs> so it's anytime like I really anyone don't want to see this, but hey, I'm a student. So what do you want? Yeah, you know at that point I had already started talking to the neurology um, crew at the office I work now, and and I was pretty sure that was where I was pointing following graduation. Um, so there was always a part of me that's like, can I get the kid that got hit in the head at soccer practice? <laughs> like, that's the one I want to take, um, but, um, you know, it was it was definitely a good, it, again, a very good learning experience. Yeah, I'm sure. Those things are, are usually
0: really good learning experiences, especially if someone throws you into, like, the wolves safely throws you into the wolves I should say because if you throw into the wolves and you get eaten alive that's not safe but yeah
1: if somebody says you know I think you have these skills maybe to do this for a shift sure go for it you know yeah exactly and there's stuff I miss from it you know I miss suturing I always liked suturing that was fun and (laughs) (laughs) like I just I enjoyed I had a I had a construction worker come in when I worked in fast track who had gotten um, too close to a, a carbon blade saw and had probably a, a three inch deep laceration in the bicep. Um, and, you know, it was a larger gentleman. So it wasn't like and we we did the imaging and made sure no tendons or anything important structures were involved. And it was just, you know, a simple laceration. So, you know, they, they handed me a suturing kit and they sent me in there and said, you know, you get to do this one. This is, this is for you to learn, you know, and I I'd sutured at that point I had sutured some superficial stuff and put staples in, but that was a pretty deep one. So it was, it was neat to be able to do that and have them trust me to do that.
0: Yeah. Um, that, that is really cool to have that independence as a student and yeah. get out there and, and do the thing. Um, when I, the story I was going to mention was I had a nurse on my unit that is now a nurse practitioner but he would he would do things like suture his shoes
1: because I think I know who you're talking about I worked yeah, with him
0: yeah so, <laughs> I remember one time like he had this gigantic hole in the shoe Like, oh I got this I don't even know if he was in if he was in school to be a nurse practitioner at that point I just think he liked doing things that seemed exciting to him I don't I could be wrong, but I'm but I'm pretty sure that that was the case, and (laughs) I'll never forget that he sutured his shoe, and I was like, I was kind of impressed that you could suture a leather shoe together, but also I was like, really, like you're just gonna suture a shoe together and be able to like walk around with it? Okay, just go buy another pair of shoes. Well, then it takes away my skills, he says. i was like, okay, all right, (laughs) okay sure whatever works for you whatever you want to do it's great i love it oh my god oh my too funny so now you work in a neuroimmunology clinic what in the heck is neuroimmunology for the people that
1: don't know so neuroimmunology is autoimmune disorders of the nervous system so primarily we are dealing with um you know the, the huge bulk of our practice is multiple sclerosis um which is a autoimmune disorder in which the person's immune system is overactive and attacks the myelin sheath surrounding the nerves, which reduces the nerves ability to conduct signals effectively, um, and can lead to things like weakness, um, poor coordination, vision changes, um, you know, sensory changes for sure. Um, you know, all sorts of things. So, so MS is i would say that the vast bulk of my practice now um and managing that condition and and uh the meds associated with it it's a lifelong condition we don't unfortunately we don't have a cure for it um but there's some good meds so you know a lot of it is is just monitoring patients making sure their meds are doing what they should be doing they're not having breakthrough disease or anything um And then in the, in the sad events, when that does happen, you know, coming up with plan B. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The other conditions we see, I I mentioned a little earlier, CNS lupus, um, things like uh, neurosarcoid um, and, you know, that's pretty much the majority of it. We see some vasculitis, we see some... um, ADEM, um, and things like that, post, post-vaccine myelitises and stuff like that, uh, neuromyelitis optica, NMO, MOG, um, all the sort of demyelinating disorders.
0: I um, did a case study one time with a physician who now works in Idaho, mm-hmm. and we, we did a really good case study of a neuromyelitis optica patient that presented with pneumonia, as their first symptom, yeah it was really bizarre and i read more into it and it's actually a rare occurrence of this neuromyelitis optica can start out with a pneumonia infection yeah and then had weakening of um his legs couldn't couldn't urinate i think he had like 1200 cc's of urine in his bladder which is a lot of urine i've only met one other person who i had to bladder scan so this this gentlemen this is not the same guy I'm talking about but this other patient he used to have his own competitions
1: with oh my all, god
0: he all his bladder for yeah <laughs> and, and he had I think four liters of urine in his bladder and didn't feel like he needed to pee and I was like how oh do my you god. begin to train your bladder to do that because that is insane like that is so much so much you're going to hold into i don't know how he wasn't septic or anything like that but he was he was fine but yeah anyway how was he not nauseous hey i don't even know like maybe he just like mentally suppressed all of those feelings oh of nausea of
1: headache of shortness of breath <laughs> his <laughs> vagus nerve was just screaming yeah
0: his <laughs> nerve was like hello and he was like through it i'm gonna hold my bladder full for x amount of hours you know? Oh my God. Yeah. So he would have these competitions before having to relieve himself. And I just thought, that is the weirdest thing I've ever in my life. Anyway, back to the strange. other <laughs> yeah, <super> strange. So, <laughs> in a row, yes. In a right. Thing. Exactly. That, that's one of the strange things that you meet with people. And it's like, okay, well, here we are living the dream, you know? Yep. So much fun yep. every day. Um, but anyway, go, going back to this other gentleman, so he had a large amount of urine in his bladder and we didn't have a diagnosis until we did an MRI and an MRA, mm-hmm. I believe, to light up his, his spinal column. And that was interesting because no one was expecting to find this, this disease. And so we right? didn't expect to find that his eye problems were associated with pneumonia, which was causing this demyelination of his spine. And I don't even think we had a cause of it. I think his infection was, was the cause of maybe an underlying autoimmune disorder. But other than that, I don't think we had... A cause for why this happened to him you know why yeah particularly this demyelination happened
1: we see that with with a lot of this stuff is that you know someone maybe they have a family history or whatever but they've seemed to be fine and then sometimes there's some kind of traumatic event either a severe illness or an accident or even something psychologically traumatic you know it, a death of a loved one and it doesn't have to be bad we've actually seen it happen you know on happy occasions someone has a baby um but oh, really unique their life completely changes and they have a lot of stress associated with it and um you know it sort of triggers off their disease it gives it that last little push it needs to kind of take over and get rolling. And, and so it isn't uncommon for us to see people come to us and say, you know, I've always been healthy. I've always been, you know, fine. And I was just under a lot of stress. And I thought that's why my leg was tingling. And then I would do this, that, and the other thing, and it wouldn't stop and it kept getting weaker. And then, you know, they end up with us and we do the, the testing. So That's so crazy, but it's so important that you
0: mentioned like happy stress and then the not so happy stress happening to patients because a lot of times people are just relatively happy people mm-hmm. they don't necessarily follow up with their PCP position especially if they're younger and I mean younger as below the age of probably 40 and in relatively good health right so yeah. like someone like myself I do go to the PCP every year though so not necessarily for myself but I don't myself, so you can right. use me as an example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but honestly, people that just don't go and get their blood pressure taken and get, their, and get their labs taken. However, I will say that even if you do go, sometimes you can't even find an autoimmune disorder until your autoimmune system kicks in. Right. And it says, hey, I have this issue going on. Here we are. Similarly, when we see people get flu vaccine and they develop myasthenia. Yep. And all of a sudden, they have trouble breathing and, and things like that. That's just your immune system that's been dormant for x amount of years that you didn't even know you had a problem with, yep. or maybe you had you had such small symptoms of these things that you were like, oh, it's just that, it's just allergies, it's just this, you know, whatever. That yeah, you didn't even pay attention to that they're actually an autoimmune disorder, which is which is also unique, which is um, probably the things that we're gonna hopefully pay attention to in the realm of neuro immunology in the future
1: yeah there's a lot of i do get a lot of patients that that come to me with i thought it was just and yeah. then you know they have some kind of explanation or justification that honestly is makes very sense. reasonable yeah it makes sense. and you know a lot of times it, ms is not crazy super common so it is a lot of times you know you slept funny and your arms numb in the morning because you slept on it <laughs> But sometimes, <laughs> you know, it is something more serious. But but we do see this where, well, my arm felt funny for a few days, but then it went away, and and then I was fine. Um, but now they're coming in with either the arm's funny again, or the vision changes, or some other symptom, and you you look back at their history and you say, you know what, that arm thing, yeah, maybe you slept funny on it, perhaps, right, but in all likelihood, honestly, that might have been your first episode. Um, But, you know, a lot of times it is extremely nonspecific and people just write it off as like, oh, you know, it's just weird or, you know, it'll go away. And it does. Yeah. Um, And
0: it also could probably happen time and time again like that for for a number of years, mm -hmm. which is is crazier.
1: I definitely, you know, I just saw a patient the other day that their their symptoms over the past several years have become severe enough that they've started to you know seek out answers for why they're happening but they you know I'm going back and I'm asking them questions about well has this ever happened or has something like this ever happened or have you ever noticed something like this and it's they're like well you know actually you know I've always sort of felt like my right leg's weaker than the left and it doesn't matter if I work out or do yoga or you know, whatever, I just I feel like I could never get my right leg strong enough. And if I use it a lot, it would get really tired. And you look back and you're like, yeah, you know what? Actually that was probably your MS ten years ago. But it was subtle enough that, you know, people just people are amazing. They just adapt to things and and explain them. And you know, again, a lot of times it's extremely reasonable the explanations and the thoughts. And, and, you know, I That's can't our, our society, though, in America, right? Like, yeah. through it, you're fine. Right. And, you know, honestly, I can't say if I were in the same boat, I wouldn't have done the same thing. Like, well, yep. you know, my foot's numb, but I can still go to work, and it'll probably go away. And, you know, if it doesn't go away in a few days, I'll, I'll do something about it. And then, you know, a week later, or a couple of weeks later, it's, Getting better, and so you say, okay, that's fine. You know, who knows what that was? That was weird. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, Um, now you made me want to come into the office again and get my work with them because. (laughs) I
1: (laughs) know I'm I'm the worst. So, (laughs) there's
0: also what was I I just gonna say? Oh, so it's really impressive, though. As well, going along the timeline of, of MS is that there's been so many advances in care that as inpatients we don't really see a lot of ms cases yeah and i think has changed in the last couple of years because we used to see quite a bit Mm -hmm. have to be in in the hospital to receive their their treatment and their care and now i don't even remember the last time that i saw somebody with primary ms that needed Mm -hmm. treatment or an infusion or something which is remarkable because you know i think I, i i don't there are certain cases I should say of, of people with different illnesses that definitely need hospital care. Right. And there are other cases where I just, I just hope and wish that the researchers are doing their work and making sure that these treatments can be done at home or in a clinic somewhere or mm-hmm. something else. Kind of like the, the newer trend, newer meaning the last couple of years of oral chemotherapies mm-hmm. patients that you can be at home take your chemo. You don't even have to be in a hospital. You can be with your family. And it's made quality of life that much better for different patient populations. So hopefully with other diseases of the neuro world, you can start seeing that.
1: And our, you know, our goal in the clinic is, is primarily to keep patients out of the hospital. Um, That doesn't mean you're not going to have someone who has a terrible flare and they can't, you know, urinate or they go blind in one eye, you know, those are, those are medical emergencies and the people need to go into the ER and get steroids aggressively. But, you know, with, with the ability now to do home infusions and do things like that, um, as well as just, we have more powerful meds that are better at reducing number and severity of relapses that people have, um, you know, we do have this, this opportunity to keep people in their homes for their treatment. You know, I can, someone calls and says, "Uh, I I think I'm having a flare. And, you know, you kind of look into it and you say, yeah, I think you're having a flare. I can order five days of IV solumedrol in their house. They don't have to go into the hospital for that anymore. So, So, you know, home nursing comes, they give them their solumedrol, they go on their steroid, oral steroid taper afterwards. They never have to be hospitalized and I can bring them into the hospital, you know, a couple weeks later and we can talk about, okay, it looks like your meds not working. Let's, what do we, what do we want to do? You know, what's your plan? Yeah. So
0: that's really really awesome for for the future. What what are some typical meds that somebody might be on with MS or, or any kind of other crazy neuro disorder that you might see in your clinic?
1: So, um, you know, just specifically to address MS, since that, that's the majority of our practice, uh, we have our, our platform meds, which are the ones, the first medicine for MS came out in the nineties. We have actually wow. only had meds for about 30 years now. Um, and it was interferon. Um, and You know, then shortly thereafter, oh, 95, 97, somewhere around there, Copaxone came out, which is an amino acid Mm -hmm. um, conglomeration. And so for a while, those were kind of what we had. Um, And they work sometimes, Um, they're very safe. So we do often still start there. Um, The issue is their injections, and some patients are not super crazy about giving themselves injections. Um, But they just modify how the immune system works to try to dissuade it from going after the nervous system versus now as, you know, technology has marched on and and pharmacology has marched on, we now have um, stronger meds that actually do directly affect the immune system to prevent it from, um, you know, doing damage. We have... We have the monoclonal antibodies, which Rituxan actually has been around for a while and has been used off-label to treat MS for quite some time, um, but they, they released a humanized form of it several years ago, ocrelizumab, um, and that, that basically wipes out the CD19 cells so that those cells can no longer, um, attack the nervous system and demyelinate. We also have, um, Tisabri, um, and Lemtrada, which are both monoclonal antibodies. The, the Tisabri actually affects how T-cells interface with the blood brain barrier so that they can't cross in to, um, do any damage to the nervous system. And, um, the, uh, Alentizumab, which is the Lemtrada, that's um, you know a little bit different in that it works on both the B and the T cells, and, and theoretically, kind of works as a reboot. So that when the immune system kind of gets rolling again, you know, it's it's a chemotherapy, and we pulse it like chemo, and mm. when the immune system gets rolling again, the idea is that it no longer recognizes the nervous system as an enemy, and yeah leaves it alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be nice to the nervous system. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so, you know, we've, we've come a long way from, from these meds that just sort of try to, you know, prevent harm when, when the early injectable meds first came out, it was considered a good result if a person only had a relapse every other year or so versus once or twice a year and now we're moving more, especially as meds get stronger and stronger, we're moving more towards relapses should be unacceptable. You know, a relapse right. should indicate that the med is failing and we have to pursue another op- option. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the relapses are really what causes the disability in these conditions. Um, and so you, you kind of want to keep them from happening as much as possible.
0: Yeah, I I imagine that relapses are kind of like a frayed wire that you're trying to fix over and over again, plugging into the wall, Mm -hmm. and each time a little micro wire fails, the system gets hot, and you have to take it out, and you have to reset it, make sure everything's good to go, and then you plug it back in again.
1: Yep, and it just, it never quite works as well as it did the first time, and the more it gets damaged, the worse it is. Yeah. Yeah. so so our our goal is always to not only prevent clinical relapses obviously but we with all of our patients that are especially on the super strong meds we do periodic MRIs even if clinically they're good because right. we want to make sure they don't have any kind of silent disease you know i've i had a patient who says i feel fine i no problems, everything's going good, everything's great and they were on one of the, the meds that's a little bit on the stronger end of the scale um, sent them for their annual monitoring MRI and you know they have three or four spots lighting up that are new and so you know, that's not a fun phone call to make to say, <laughs> "Listen, your med's failing. Um, mm-hmm. I know you feel good and that's great, and you like your medicine, but it's failing and sooner or later you are going to have an issue from this. Um, so, you know,
0: what are those, those spots? So, so that's a brain MRI that you do, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's a specific MS protocol Mm -hmm. that I think they follow, but what are the spots that light up for people that don't know?
1: So what we look for is we look for, um, T2 prolongation on the flare and T2 imaging, um, Specifically periventricular and juxtacortical um, lesions, which are plaques, lesions, plaques, those are used interchangeably. It's basically areas of scarring where the immune system has done damage to the myelin sheath on the nervous system. It has tried to repair itself, but there's always a scar there. Um, so we look for for very specific patterns in MS, as well as as um, sometimes laboratory findings. If someone has a lumbar puncture, we look for signs in the lumbar puncture that there is myelin sheath breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and in active disease, we will see that there are new spots or spots that have been there before are now larger. And additionally, when we give an active spot because there's inflammation at that area. When we give the gadovist contrast, um, there will be enhancement at the site of the activity because of the inflammation. So, you know, it's not great to see an MRI where you you see new spots or bigger spots. It's really worrisome when you get an MRI and and there's enhancement because not only is their disease still active, it's active right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Right now. Like I
0: need steroids.
1: Yeah. And it can, it can work anywhere in the central nervous system from, you know, brain, cervical, thoracic, spine. So some of our, some of our crew that we have, even if the brain looks good, you know, if they're having... symptoms and I image their cervical spine too, I'll see, Now well, the brain looks fine, but uh-oh, they've got a new spot and it's enhancing in their cervical. And, you know, people, people don't tolerate spinal cord hits as well as they tolerate brain hits. They can, can take a little more up in the brain than they can in the spinal cord.
0: Yeah. It's a tinier area in that spinal cord. Yeah. And it doesn't, so if you have something happen to your brain and it, and it, and it swells, you know, let's just take mm-hmm. an example for a minute. It doesn't necessarily swell in the spinal column. So if you have some sort of injury to the spinal column, it's not going to rebound. No. If it does rebound. It's super slow. Yeah. And so if you have a, a plaque that happens in the brain, you might, you, you really might not notice it until it's large enough that it, that it creates issues. Exactly. It's scarred enough in the MS example that now it's creating issues because it's, it's, it's grown in that scarring.
1: Yeah the the patients that we see that come to us with sort of vague symptoms and we find that they have solely brain disease depending on how active their disease is
0: mm-hmm.
1: we may not you know we do generally want to favor some of the platform drugs with them first just because of the safety profile and they the brain disease whereas if i have someone roll in with spinal cord disease and they're active then I'm really concerned and I'm probably going to just skip those platform drugs and we're going to move straight to some heavy hitters because if they keep taking hits in their spinal cord, they're going to have some serious problems. Platform drugs, meaning like your baseline drugs you would give somebody? The injectables, yeah, the interferon, the copaxone, yeah. um, some of our orals like the Abagio and Tecfidera. Um, those are pretty pretty good ones to start with for a lot of the time because- Their safety profile is good and they are generally fairly effective, but there's not a whole lot of evidence, especially for the the Capaxone interferon and Abagio, that they are super effective in the spinal cord disease. Gotcha. So, you know, if I have someone who's rolling in and their issue is spinal cord, I'm not going to look so hard at those drugs. I'm going to pay more attention to our monoclonal antibodies and our S1P1 you know inhibitors and things like mm-hmm.
0: that. Yeah, and it's really interesting that that you use amino acids to treat certain diseases as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are under the assumption that medications that are delivered to people are these crazy chemicals that go yeah. in, and don't realize that they're actually um not they're, they can be from plant sources, from amino yep. acids, from anything that are just developed as a drug. And yep. um so that's, I think, really important because not a lot of people understand that most of these things, that's where they come from. So what other recommendations, since we're talking about patients and stuff, do you do you have for someone to kind of reduce perhaps their stress so that they don't go into a flare-up? I remember having one um, patient not too long ago that had a flare-up. I don't remember what it was. It It, it was some autoimmune disorder, and it seemed that Whenever her life stress was like a 10 out of 10, things would happen. Yeah. And certainly this person had a lot going on socially, psychosocially, all that stuff. So, and I tried to consult with them in terms of what they could do to help control their symptoms to prevent flare-ups. But what would you tell people, you know, or what do you tell people to do in terms of reducing their flare-ups?
1: So we have, um, you know, in addition to medication, we have some general lifestyle modifications. We like to keep people's vitamin D levels um, a little bit higher, Uh, keeping the vitamin D level up um, even above what's considered like baseline normal. So our lab cuts normal off at 30. We like to keep our gang between 50 and 100. We find that it reduces severity and reduces frequency of relapses. Um, So vitamin D is great. There's some weak evidence that biotin supplementation may help reduce relapses. Um, A probiotic may help reduce relapses. And then there's just some lifestyle modifications, things like eating diets, um, low in red meat and salt, high in fresh fruits and vegetables. Big thing is avoiding smoking. Smoking will absolutely get things really stirred up if you have any kind of autoimmune disease, but especially MS. Um, so a, a lot of our patients that are smokers, we do want to work with them as much as we can to get them to stop smoking, um, and, you know, just re- stress reduction techniques, we like people to try to stay active, but the the issue with MS is, you know, you get tired, and it's yeah. not the kind of tired that you just bounce back from, you right. know, it can take it out of them for days, so I'm, yeah. I'm, Yes. 30 minutes, five times a week is ideal and perfect. But, you know, I do tell my patients, you have to be really conscious of your body. If your body's telling you I'm done for today, then you gonna be done for, for day. that day. Right. You know, and but maybe so, it's more than what you did a week before. Exactly. You know? you know, you can build up a little bit, but, but with this, with MS and, and conditions like that, it can really be tough because yeah. the fatigue and the weakness is real. Um, yeah. it's very difficult. So, you know, it, we, we have some lifestyle modifications. We want people to reduce stress as much as possible. We have a wonderful social worker, um, in the MS clinic and a nurse navigator who, who help us, um, find resources for patients to try and eliminate some sources of stress in their life. Obviously, if you have five kids, kids at home and you're running after them because school's closed because of COVID, you know, we, we can't do a ton about that, but, you know, helping people get set up with transportation or if someone's at the stage of their disease where they need to consider disability, you know, we do have the social worker, um, our social worker, Shannon, who's wonderful at, at, here's the resources you can reach out to. Here's where you need to call to get started and, and, Helps them through that process a little bit if they need assistance with it.
0: Yeah, certainly. If I mean, you just mentioned you know, if you have like five kids and stuff. That there's a lot of there's a lot of people that struggle with psychosocial stuff. Kids is one of them. Not saying that kids are not a blessing, but sometimes they can be stressful, right? You're handling yeah. five kids, two kids, even one kid, and there's certain things that you can't deal with. If you're a single parent, you know. If you yes. want on food stamps, if you need to seek assistance from government support, sometimes, sometimes like that's, that, being in that situation is just so stressful enough Yeah, that, yeah. sometimes you can't do enough to try to help somebody, but just kind of yeah. wait it out and offer support.
1: If so we really have, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, if we have access to resources that help those people, we generally try to get them that help. Just because it's one less thing on their plates. But yeah, sometimes, I mean, the way society is set up right now, you, you really do have the cards stacked against you. And it's hard, you know, when I have a patient who I'm telling you really need to reduce your stress and they're looking at me like, how, how do you think I'm going to do that? And I don't have a good answer. You know, I don't know, but I'm just letting you know that you should do this. Like, uh, well, uh, do you have a family member you can pawn your kids off onto for an hour once a week, at least to just like take a breather, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes, you know? Yes. I want people to have as little stress in their life as possible, but it it can be, that's a big ask. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes
0: yes it 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 really is um I'm just saying I'm just shaking my head yes and going yes because I know a lot of people that do struggle with those sort of things that it's very big to ask a very tiny thing and those tiny things can seem so tiny to to like me but to them it's like this gigantic need and this gigantic ask of them to do that it creates such anxiety just thinking about it you know Mm -hmm. so it's kind of land of land I guess but really interesting though, I want to go back to the sort of supplements you talked of. Um, because in COVID, there mm-hmm. is new evidence to support that vitamin D is really good for the immune system in preventing it help preventing COVID. It it also prevents the flu as well, or can prevent it, supplementation. Mm-hmm. Of it. That's really unique that it that it can be found in MS patients as well. And also, I am a huge fan and a huge believer in the gut brain axis and the microbiome mm-hmm. that exists. So I'd be curious cuz you also mentioned like dietary changes and smoking which drastically impact our gut and brain health. I just try to combine those words, that was good. Um, <laughs> but certainly if you if you did such simple things, maybe that even just reduces stress by just changing changing your diet or changing how you can impact your gut bugs that
1: do influence your your brain health yeah at the the relationship between the gut and the brain and you know the probiotics and the ms that's not super well understood there is some weak evidence um that that helps interestingly also coffee seems to help so um you know shout out to coffee god Mm. knows i would i would die without it i would die without Um, it but the uh, the vitamin D correlation, you know, low levels of vitamin D are generally associated with more stress, more inflammation. So that makes sense. We do see higher rates of MS in, you know, the more northern or southern you go in terms of latitude. Um, it's it's more a condition that you see in people without a lot of sun exposure.
0: That's really um, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, so my mind is officially blown. So we we see a lot more of it in our region than they see, say, in you know south southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, but you know it it's uh, or India or whatever. But the it's interesting. The diagnosis is ticking up, and it's it's a question in developing countries of is it just being spotted more now, and we're sure. picking yeah, it out true. more, or is it because as we talked about earlier with the symptoms, sometimes they can be quite general and people will just discount them. Mm-hmm. Um, or is, is there something else going on? You know, is it more than just sun exposure? Is there, you know, a genetic component? Is there a viral component? Is there, there's been all sorts of ideas through history floated for why do people get MS? Um, but certainly, vitamin D does seem to help at least reduce um, the risk of severe relapses if it's maintained in in a higher range.
0: That is that is really awesome. I'm, I'm going to start using that on people that I, that I I know some people that do have MS. So I'm going to target this podcast to them as well, Being like you need to listen to this and see what you can <laughs> find from this and like see what you know you need because you know there's not a lot that I that I can offer to people outside of what I know. And coming from a clinic that sees this stuff every day and the new treatments and things like that is explained in so much better detail than even certain magazines can put out there. I used to get, I think, some MS Connection magazine to see what mm-hmm. I could learn, but it really wasn't that beneficial to me. And it's oftentimes hard to get education on MS outside of the um, society that that you just mentioned a long ago, American Academy of Neurology. Yeah. and For me, it would be re- really expensive to belong to that. Yes. If I don't belong to it. I think that you know, you being the provider of neurology, absolutely. So when so for certain organizations that I belong to, the education about MS and other things just is just not there yet. So then yeah. I'm lacking, and I'm like, hey, what do I do about this? So. So it's really good to hear this stuff, because I think a lot of people, even just outside of students now, will be able to hear this information and really have it at their fingertips or their ear tips, because it's a podcast.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know when I moved, when as a nurse practitioner, my first job was in epilepsy, and I moved, I shuffled one hall down to do the MS division, Yeah. and, you know, epilepsy was a ton to learn, and then moving to MS, you're like, Oh my gosh!
0: I thought you started epilepsy, and then I don't. And I I thought. Did. And then when you gave me your bio, I'm like neuroimmunology. I'm like, is that a thing to do with seizures? Like, what?
1: (laughs) No, I I started with epilepsy. I did that for um, almost two years, just shy of two years. And then um, the the they were trying to grow the neuroimmunology department in the in just the overall neurology clinic, and um, you know they. I was approached <laughs> um, to see if I would be interested in kind of shuffling over, um, and and I was, and you know, coming into it, it, it is very different, and there was a lot to learn, you know, seizure yeah. meds are... Seizure meds are hard to learn about to start with. And then I come over here and they're like, oh yeah, it's autoimmune. So here's the chemos that we give and here's this and here's that. And by the way, all that stuff you learned about the immune system and nurse practitioner, your MSN, guess what? Brush up. <laughs> like, oh my God, what's a T-cell? <laughs> so there, the first... The first uh, eight to 12 months I was on orientation and there was a lot of frantic reading at night about the immune system because, you know, I worked with wonderful doctors and they would mention like this, that, and the other thing. And I'd be like, okay, uh, I kind of remember learning about that five years ago. I've got to go home and, and refresh because definitely give me 24 hours and I swear I'll have this. It's good. Yes. Yeah. I, the, the immune cascade initially, I was like, I, Oh my God, I remember nothing about this. And now I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> You're like, I just want to be a midwife. I don't need to know this. It's fine.
0: <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> no, I would much rather do this than deliver babies. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my. Oh,
0: so anyways, so well, Leading into your discussion about working in a clinic, because we didn't get to talk on this, and you mentioned earlier, how different was it when you transitioned from ICU nurse to clinic? Because you said it was nuts, but what kind of things were so different about it that we don't know about?
1: I had been warned time and time again that the transition from nurse to nurse practitioner was the hardest transition anyone has ever made in their career. And so I kind of expected that, but to go from ICU to clinic was also pretty tough because in ICU, I was used to having all kinds of resources at my fingertips. You know, we had, if we needed to do a test, we could do it. If we needed to check a vital sign, we could do it. If we needed to have a doctor come and, and look the patient over, um, you know, and decide, gosh, should we do surgery? Should we not do surgery? We could do it. Um, you know, there was, everything was right there at your fingertips. And then coming to the clinic, it was like, everything suddenly is in slow motion, you know? <laughs> like, oh. Um, now to be fair, nobody's dying right at that moment. So you don't need to have this crazy, crazy access, but you know, it's like, in the ICU, well, what did their labs show? Well, they were drawn eight hours ago, so they might not be up to date. Whereas in the clinic, I'm looking at their labs from three months ago and I'm going, yeah, it's all right. You know, (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. 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 They were, they were fine three months ago and they look good today. So I'm sure they're (laughs) fine. Um, (laughs) But you know, it, it is very, it was very different. And not only that, but the transition from bedside nurse to nurse practitioner where if I, need, if I had a question about a patient or what should I do or whatever, I could go to one of the, the ICU NPs or the ICU physicians or residents. And now I'm the one answering the question. People are coming to me and saying, well, what should I do? And I'm thinking, well, I better go, oh, shit. Like I'm the one that they're asking and I have to know the answer to this. <laughs> it was it was a little bit of uh, an adjustment in that and, and I was well trained and well prepared so but there is a little bit of a, a culture shock almost
0: yeah I, I could imagine that being that being that provider we talked before about what it's like when you when you start out as a student but then start out as a new nurse how you're independent then when you become the provider you are the expert of experts in whatever your practice is gonna be, even, for, even more so than a staff nurse. And you don't have anybody to really ask sometimes about X, Y, and Z, unless you're consulting like a textbook, right, right. in some cases. So that's, a, that's a, quite a daunting experience because then when you get patients that come and ask you these questions, and you're like, let me ask, um, ooh, let me, let me ask somebody about that, you know, Oftentimes, yeah. kind of go back and retrace your steps, and, man, that kind of sounds a lot like um, a, a lot of stress, and, and that learning curve again goes straight up mm-hmm. to being that 10 out of 10 again. So, you have, I feel like you have, like, three different learning curves, one when you go to nursing school, and then, you, and then one when you become a staff nurse, and then another one when you decide to go back to school again, and then another one when you, when you decide to start that new gig, whatever that
1: may be. Uh, Like to, to call back to what we said earlier, it, this is not a career where you can ever be done learning, right? You are always learning. So, and now, you know, where I'm at people, people start asking, when are you going to get your doctorate? When are you going to, I just graduated three years ago. Leave me alone. (laughs) I want to be, I just want to chill for a little bit and just do my continuing ed and like really like. Learn more about the field that I'm in. And when I feel like, okay, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of this, I, I'm, I feel very informed on what I'm doing. Not to say I don't now, but when I feel extremely comfortable with that, um, then maybe we'll talk about a doctorate. You know? yeah. I mean,
0: I'm going back for my doctorate, and it's not in nurse practitioner, It's just a DNP. And I graduated my master's six years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everyone, Hearing this, if you're not sure about when, or don't let anybody force you go back to get your doctorate or any degree. First of all,
1: not even your family, because they'll be like, "Oh, when are you going to do this?" Just, just live your life. Yes, my mother. Happy. My mother is the biggest proponent of me going back to get my doctorate, and you know, there there are times where I'm like, I am so tired. Yes, (laughs) I cannot do that right now. I need I need to
0: catch up on these drugs right now, Mom. I need to not go back to school right now
1: they're, they're literally coming out with at least one or two new drugs for MS every year. And I already feel like I'm just like, okay, now I've got to learn about this one. And now I've right. got to learn about this one. And, and the thought of throwing a doctorate work to that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't do that right now.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
1: the, the DMP,
0: essentially you do a practice project that is yeah. research-based um, and you can do a whole ton of different different things with that but that just sounds like if you had to do learning meds every year in a relatively new job and trying to do your doctorate sounds almost as crazy as you getting your bac- bachelor's degree while working two jobs <laughs> on four hours of sleep that's i've that's learned awesome. from my mistakes right. Nicole. <laughs> like i am not i'm not gonna do this now i'm gonna i'm gonna chill
1: um, I'm relax. I'm older and wiser. <laughs> no, I've I've only been in this job now for a year. The the neuroimmunology job. I took it. I started last July. Um so it's been just about a year that I've been in here and um I'm still establishing my practice. I'm still seeing a lot of patients that are if not brand new then at least new to me. Yeah. Um so, you know, and there's a lot that comes along with that too. You know, you're getting to know somebody and, and some of my patients saw the same doctor for 15 years and here I am like a new face, you know, Hey, you don't know me at all. So <laughs> you've got to way. We're going to be really good friends. Yeah. You're going to see me every three months for the rest of your life. No. Uh, so, you know, for some, for some of this, it's, it's just kind of getting, up to speed with your own practice is enough work that you know and not then you're learning new drugs and and you're trying to learn this and that and the other thing and and we have a lot of administrative stuff to do as well as the providers and you know there's research um and just getting used to all that I think will take me a few years <laughs> what are, what are some of the administrative things that you have to do um, so the Department of Neuroimmunology uh, is relatively new we've, okay. we've always had m s division within um, you know the neurology clinic, but it was always just sort of lumped in under general neurology and it's really been within right. the past six months that they split it out to be its own thing which is smart so we're it is, but we're trying to s- establish you know not only just hey we're the doctors you see but try to, to get the comprehensive care thing where we have a social worker, we have a nurse navigator. We're they're interviewing right now for a clinical pharmacist to help us with some of these drugs. Um, you know because the the process for some of these drugs is quite lengthy. Insurance doesn't want to pay for any of them. So you have to jump through
0: so why would I pay for them?
1: Yeah, you have to jump through every hoop known to man. So we're we're looking for someone to assist us with that. So you know just building this this clinic, in addition to, I'm still getting to know the patients and I'm still getting to know the drugs and I'm still, you know, like establishing my own sort of practice and rhythm. Um, it's, it's definitely a lot. There's a lot of stuff that you end up, um, of doing that you never thought you would you would do we don't have anybody to do the sort of fighting back and forth with insurance companies right now um besides our our wonderful but hideously overworked lpn (laughs) who only has so many hours in a day so you know in between seeing patients i'll do some prior authorizations or try to like put a couple things through and you're just you know it, it's, I come home from work and I'm very tired. <laughs> it
0: sounds like it's exhausting, but it also sounds like it's really coming together really nicely. It is. In it's, terms of patients, in terms of what you guys will need and all, all that good stuff too.
1: It's slow going, but it's, it is going to be, we're starting to see like when we get there, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be really good. Definitely so. really good. Are you guys involved in any clinical trials? Um, we are working on it. There was just a new, a new med came out. Um <laughs> and course, we're, once a year. We're working on um kind of comparing it to uh its competitors. Okay. Um we were asked by the the pharmaceutical company that manufactures that um to participate in, you know, would we like to get patients to switch from one of the competitors to this new one or just anybody that goes on the new one, can we keep track of them and how they do? And we can kind of do side by sides. Um, Yeah, that's cool. So that that's one. There, there's one um, we've been kicking around about depression and mood disorders in MS. Um, So you know we're we're sort of uh, planning that. We're in the planning stages of that. Um, And you know there's been other stuff mentioned right now with COVID. Uh, everything's kind of on hold, but the MS Society actually has put together a database online where they're keeping track of any patient with MS who gets COVID, what drugs they're on, their age, and yeah. their, out, their outcome yeah. um, to see. So we're, we've been contributing to that. Luckily, we haven't had a ton of COVID um, patients, but um, we've been working on that as well to contribute to that because it's there, there are a lot of questions about you know these people that are on our CD19 depleters. Yeah, are they at, more at risk? Theoretically, yes, but you know what does the data show? What does the evidence show? Um, and and just trying to gather all that up.
0: Yeah, I mean, and certainly one of the one of the major risk factors for COVID is if you're on any kind of um, immuno suppressing drugs. Mm-hmm. So things like um, the, the ones that you mentioned, it, it can be a significant risk for COVID as well. Um, and certainly with the stress levels of some of these patients that have MS, that can certainly be a risk factor just on top of everything else. So yeah, there's lots to still learn about, certainly for, for COVID. There's two resources I'll have to send them to you. We um, might know about them too. They're, they're like the, the pre, it's like pre-publishing studies before mm-hmm. they journals they're like these forums that you can like look up anything you want to okay i forget what the what the websites are i think it's like BioRx and MedRx, and you can look up any kind of studies that you want to especially on covid because certainly one of the things that was so interesting to me was the fact that our stroke rates and our cardiac um, event rates significantly declined during covid yeah for for i think a number of, of reasons right so nobody's going to work Mm-hmm. So, they don't have to deal with the stress of work. Yeah. Nobody is going to a bar and either drinking a ton of alcohol, eating all the salty, fatty foods, even smoking, even though they don't smoke, you know, yeah. you're in the environment with a smoky bar. And maybe they're, they have um, a relationship with somebody and that person at home is cooking them meals and making sure that they take all their meds on time, things like that. Mm-hmm. Certain things that we just don't know how to collect the data on because this is so new yeah it's and these
1: the little ripples coming out rep- from it
0: yeah the really unique things that need to be looked into but probably will happen in a, rec- a retrospective way as opposed to right. hey let's track this right now because we really can't because we don't know and right people
1: need to understand that that's okay even though they want to go out and party on the beach right now <laughs> yeah. like we were we were talking about before we started recording. You know, the the one drug we have that's an immunosuppressant. Yeah. Initially, we delayed all the infusions because we were just like, I, I, I don't know, does I this don't know. it put you at more right. at risk? Or are you going to have a bad outcome? We're not sure. And now they're saying, well, it looks like it doesn't put anyone at greater risk, and the outcomes aren't worse. But at the same time, that's based on data from a hundred patients. Yeah. Possibly less. Small, I forget the exact a small number. amount of, of patients that have, are, are being studied for people that don't understand yeah. how
0: clinical research works. So when you do a clinical research trial um, and you want to figure out the number of patients that are going to give you a specific outcome, there's actually a formula that is computed by a computer system. If you wanted to, that will literally give you the number of people they need to enroll in a particular study to figure out if this thing works or it doesn't work. Like what's that number, you know? and then you need to enroll people, and then you need to begin studying those people. And then from that amount of people, sometimes people drop out of studies, sometimes people um, don't do well on whatever you're trying to study, and sometimes Mm -hmm. people um, do do very well. And so that's really important to know because even though the data is tiny on research projects, it still could be promising, but it's not 100% promising. And that is the most important thing I try to tell people when they want to look at certain studies about anything, even though we're talking about MS right now and COVID, is that you really do need a good patient population to have studies on, to really say to ourselves, yes, this absolutely works on X number of of people and we can
1: do this for everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And recruitment's an issue, you know? Yeah. we We have a couple studies that we've talked about um, doing or working with through, you know, our department, but the problem is you need to recruit so many patients. And when we look at our patient population, just you look at the numbers and you think, okay, well you need X number of people on this drug. We have more than that, but not a ton more. And what are we gonna, you know, what percentage of them is going to want to participate in the trial because it's not going to be 100. Right. Um, you know, and will we even be able to, to get the recruitment we need to pursue this study? Right. So yeah, it's... Those,
0: those things are, are, I think, one of the most trickiest notions of how do you go and attempt a clinical trial and how do you make it successful so that people feel comfortable participating in a clinical trial and are not persuaded by somebody outside of the healthcare realm of saying oh well you shouldn't do that because of x y and z you know
1: or another
0: reason why people don't want to participate in in trials that could be anything really so yeah yeah i think that's that's super important to, to recommend to people what other things do you have for students
1: um advice for students would be like i said earlier learn everything you can while you're a student um, take advantage of the fact that you're a student. Yeah. Don't fly
0: by the seat of your pants.
1: Don't fly by the seat of your pants. If you're going to a grad school interview, prepare, uh, (laughs) and, um, you know, study, 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 study. I know for my NCLEX and my, my FNP exam, I studied my butt off for both of those. Um, and I, you know, passed both on the first try, but Um, I know people that didn't, and some of them studied a lot, but a lot of them didn't study very much. So, you know, study like your life depends on it for those exams. Yeah. Um, And, you know, honestly, get to know your co-workers, get to know your co-students, get to know your colleagues, because you you never know who you're gonna, you know, need help from down the road or, or, you know, if you're you're just good to people, you know, good things will come back to you. So if you work with a, with a student and, you know, you guys go your separate ways after school, but you never know, you know, five or so years down the line, you end up back at the same hospital and you have that, that relationship and networking. Uh, <laughs> yes. Network. But Network. Like your life depended on it. People yeah. just say hello. Net- I'm, I'm the most, introverted person on the planet and if i can manage to network anybody can um yes. for people
0: who don't know ashley loves nothing more than sitting at home knitting
1: yeah knitting I don't know. Uh, and petting my cat i'm 95 yes. years old uh, <laughs> and watching my murder mysteries on tv i really do not socialize a whole lot <laughs>
0: I mean you know some people just like to, to do those things you know you're wearing a shirt right now that has a yarn on it yes it's it the perfect Ashley shirt
1: it's an that, EKG rhythm with a, a yarn replacing one of the PVC complexes <laughs> that's, that is the perfect Ashley shirt I feel like you should, you should make
0: it into like a like a like a shawl or something I like want
1: that. it in a knitting trivia contest <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's knitting but you want it Knitting trivia contest. Yeah, yep. That's things that exist. Get on my level. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're
0: you're here with that stuff. I'm like way down. <laughs> not even remotely interested in knitting.
1: Sorry, you can do an Iron Man. I could. I would die if I had to run a mile.
0: <laughs> I mean, right, I was, I love nothing more than just being out there for eight, seven and a half, eight hours at a time, just running around the town. You know, swimming, biking, and running—that's that's my
1: thing. Knitting? No, I'd be bored. Uh, exercise sounds like torture to me. <laughs> <laughs> you exercise your hands and your brain. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, my hands. I garden a lot. So, and oh, the American the Heart. Heart Association says that that counts as moderate <laughs> physical activity. So I will hang my hat on that until the day I die. Yeah,
0: and <laughs> if a there,
1: you sweat a lot. So there, you know, clearly, I mean, that's a good workout. You're getting sunshine you're getting your vitamin you're d so good ash you are preventing ms and all the other things and also getting out <laughs> workout in and also you know
0: be, being a good human by by making the environment better by having a garden debatably yeah right yeah mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. <laughs> at a time you know yep little changes all Right. well actually it's been awesome talking to you this podcast is full of Info, and I'm excited to release it like literally as soon as I'm done recording here. So, thank you so much for being a part of it. I hope that the students learn something, and even like people now will learn something from it because I don't know how many experts that I know that are MS experts. So, it's been wonderful. Oh, experts is a strong word, but thank you for having
1: me. <laughs> You're more of an expert than I am. So, that, 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 that's awesome. <laughs> right. Thanks for having me, Nicole.